welcome to episode one of the DHD podcast. I'm your host, Callum Leslie. This is my podcast. We talk about every episode of Stargate, starting today with Children of the Gods. Children of the Gods originally aired in July of 1997, and this episode is going to be a little bit longer, probably, than any other episode we're going to do because we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about both halves of the pilot. Uh, which originally aired as two episodes, but on the same night uh, has since been, when it's released on DVD, is one episode. Uh, it's been re-released as the final cut as one episode. So we're going to talk about it here as one episode. Um, I'm going to record it in two in two halves because there's a lot <laughs> I've realized in doing this. Uh, I've ended up, t- I've been taking notes and I have, let's just have a look here. Uh, nearly 1200 words just on part one so i've done part one at this point i haven't done uh the look back of part two i'm gonna record a lot of chunks because it's just me talking so i don't want to be sitting here just talking to myself for an hour so i'm gonna do episode one episode two and then sort of the the rounding off at the end uh we're gonna talk about some reviews of the final cut on imdb which i found which are hilarious uh we'll talk about some of the changes some of the general uh takeaways from the episode that sort of thing but of course, first you can find us on Twitter at DHDPod, uh, Facebook.com forward slash DHDPod as well. I'm on Twitter at CallumLeslie92. Do give us a follow. Uh, share the episode about it. It's on SoundCloud. It's on iTunes now. Uh, so so yeah, so go, go share that. But yeah, let's talk about Children of the Gods, the pilot episodes 101 and 102. Technically, uh, there's a lot going on here. This first half there's actually not a lot of story in this first half um we'll talk about this i think in the uh, i'll talk about this in the second part but there are some scenes or at least one scene that i can think of that are moved in the final cut from the second half to the first half to perhaps move the story along a little bit better because the first half really only follows the three characters that were introduced to uh mainly just uh just Richard Dean Anderson's character Jack O'Neill uh, but also Samantha Carter and Daniel Jackson with a little bit of appearances by Teal'c but it doesn't really follow his story uh, in fact we don't even really see much of his story in this pilot until we get to uh, an episode much later on with a, a series of flashbacks but uh, we don't actually begin the show establishing the characters we establish the threat straight on, straight away we don't meet the characters and then have the threat emerge they emerge because of the threat which i think is is interesting and it does make the threat all that more apparent i guess uh the threat is at the forefront of the show and everything that happens you know this is a weekly episodic week-to-week show where there is a a story in every episode at least in sg1 and in most of sg1 um it's not like Stargate Universe where it's a a sort of ongoing serial story this it's very much a week-to-week sci-fi show where a lot of the time as we get into the series everything is reset at the end of an episode to where it was there before the start of the episode uh so we start with a group of marines in the in the gate room playing poker uh there is one woman and a bunch of men and i talked about this in the introduction it's something like there's a lot of in this episode and some other episodes as well there's been concern i've heard a lot of concern in discussing the show with people a lot of concern online with the way this show writes women and i have to say that uh i feel like those concerns are apparent straight off the bat because 
all these people are here playing poker and it's in fact the woman who's worried about whether or not they're going to get in trouble uh and she's you know she's the one who's concerned that it might not be the right thing to do for them to be playing poker in the gate room aren't you guys afraid of an officer coming down here or something trust nobody ever comes down here but us Does that thing always do that? Of course, she's proved right. Uh, it ends up captured for it, which is a little bit of a shame. Uh, so Apophis uh, comes through with the Jafar. Uh, Apophis, we don't know who he is at this point. We find out later on that it's Apophis. Uh, you don't need to have seen the movie, I don't think, to know that the guy in the gold is the big bad and the other guys in silver are his henchmen or soldiers. Like That's fairly self-explanatory. Uh, he's clearly quite evil so he comes through and uh, they kidnap the woman because that's as we find out what they're looking to do in these early episodes so they kidnap the woman whose name we never learn uh, even though we see her multiple times in this version of the of the show uh, we see her twice more we never find out who she is so she ends up captured and the biggest problem there a lot of things about the show hadn't been decided yet i think it's pretty clear and the biggest problem that longtime fans and nerds for stargate have is that the gate shuts off and then suddenly the gate read the gate is active again when hammond and the soldiers come through the door how did that happen we don't know uh unless there are some people who appear to have the ability to conjure a wormhole or to do it with just like a wave of a hand without the dialing procedure uh but in the final cut version i'm going to refer to some of the changes in it as we go through in the final cut version uh they added the sound of the gate being redialed so you just sort of have to assume they have some kind of mobile device because they don't they don't go to the control room of course there's no device next to the gate to dial it uh so that you just have to assume that they have some kind of remote or the thing you can stick on the gate which we'll see later on to dial the symbols and it, it all works out for them so it's it's not totally that's not totally ridiculous they sort of explain it by adding just the sound of it being redialed off screen in the final cut otherwise it just appears um so that's your opening scene that's your establishment of the peril uh this thing which had been in storage which had been untouched and just sort of looked over by some marines who seemingly thought they were getting like the the graveyard shift suddenly suddenly it's active again suddenly it's a problem and and of course they assume and we'll talk about this i talk about this a little bit later on but they assume they can only hit the a that it's raw because ra is the only eye glowing big bad that we know of from the film and that they must have come from abydos because as far as we know the gate can only travel between earth and abydos it's speculated later that that's because abydos and earth are the closest to each other the closest gates to each other in the galaxy and that's established as series continuity but in the film it's actually uh, abydos is apparently on the edge of the known universe um which of course would not make it the closest the closest to earth unless earth is also on the edge on the outermost edge of the known universe and we never really knew about it um so yeah so then we meet jack o'neill richard dean anderson who of course is not kurt russell uh he's a bit of a space fan air force yes sir i'm the general's executive officer one little piece of advice major get re-asked to nasa that's where all the action's gonna be 
He's got the telescope on his roof. Uh, Colonel Sanders comes to see him and says that he has to go in. And one thing that this struck me, actually, looking at this this whole series, and I, and I don't want to spoil stuff in the series, and again, that's something I'll refer back to this podcast a lot, but the West Wing Weekly has done, which is that if you're watching the show for the first time, you can watch along with the podcast. You don't, you're not going to get spoilers for future episodes. Um, so I'm only going to spoil stuff that's in the episode we're talking about on the podcast. Uh, O'Neill comes in very easily. He's very happy to come in and speak to Hammond about the Stargate. In Later in the series, we'll see another version of this sequence of events, kind of. Or we'll see, you know we'll see uh, yeah we'll see we'll see sort of another version of this situation and he's very hostile um, perhaps I think because that sequence of events is not at the same time it's it's later uh, in time <laughs> I'm trying to be very vague um, and I guess the way he's asked it's kind of an order and and even though he's retired he doesn't have to listen to orders I guess he does take the order of a general still seriously. Uh, Jack O'Neill is a very sarcastic character in the TV show. Kurt Russell was very straight laced in the film, but the series Jack O'Neill, the humor is is one of the great things about the show. But it slips quite easily here. Um, he quite strongly defends Daniel Jackson and what happened in Abydos, continuing to keep their story up. Uh, again, you only know what he's saying is definitely untrue if you've seen the film. But I think if you've not seen the film, you get the sense he's not being entirely honest right i think it's pretty clear he's hiding something from the way he talks and the the way he sort of holds himself um so they decide they're going to send a bomb to abydos because that's a reasonable thing to do also what if they don't live within nuclear bomb range of the stargate you're just going to blow up the area i mean i guess the, the idea is you blow up the gate and they can never come back at least uh which i can see i can see that logic are they actually planning to send it is my question i don't know were they just calling O'Neill's bluff? Because I think I also get the sense that General Hammond seems to have guessed that O'Neill didn't actually go through with what he was told to do. And he didn't detonate the bomb uh, on the ground. They detonated it on the ship. Which, in, in the movie, makes a lot more sense. It makes no sense for them to have done it on the ground because Rob was in the ship above the ground. So they really did the right thing. But Hammond is very upset about this. So, uh... Yeah. It's also, it's assumed that the gate in Abydos has to have been unburied because the the new bad guys came through from Abydos, so they think. It turns out that's just kind of a coincidence that the gate in Abydos is unburied because they came, as we find out later, from Chulak. Which is never really explained why the Abydos gate was unburied. I guess maybe Daniel thought... Uh, it's, we should maybe just just in case people want to come back we should unbury it and guard it instead um, we see the gate being dialed for the first time as they send the box of tissues to Abydos and it's a very involved process in these early episodes we see the object travelling on the, the monitor we see the, the map reticle move and everything like that that all does get stripped away the later we go on uh, it's replaced kind of with the iconic uh, Chevron's screen which uh, isn't often shown a lot of the time in much later seasons so they, they send the box of tissues the box of tissues comes back and they're set to go on the mission to Abydos and that leads us to the scene where the team is assembled and this is one of the most debated scenes in the series 
and one of the most changed in the final cut, which is really interesting. So the uh, the, the, the it starts with they're assembling the team, and Sam Carter is being assigned to the team. O'Neill says, "Where is he transferring from?" Where is he transferring from? She is transferring from the Pentagon. In the original version, she says she. She's standing in the doorway of the briefing room, and then she starts to walk in. In the final cut, you see that she, you, when Hammond is talking, before O'Neill says, where is he transferring from, you see her walk in the door, and she just sort of approaches the chair as she's saying it, or after, just after she says it. Um, which, I guess, doesn't put O'Neill in the greatest light, because it means he just like didn't notice that someone walked into the room. Um, but yeah, a lot of stuff gets taken out of this scene. Um, a lot of this the stuff that could be seen that, that I think is is certainly sexist and weirdly chauvinistic, but also like some of the weird like aggressiveness of Carter, which we just don't see. Um, there's some banter about GI Joe dolls and stuff that's taken out. There's uh, other little bits that are taken out. There is, of course, the iconic line about reproductive organs. And just because my reproductive organs are on the inside instead of the outside, doesn't mean I can't handle whatever you can handle. <laughs> oh, this has nothing to do with you being a woman. <clears throat> I like women. I've just got a little problem with scientists. And that leads into a line from O'Neill, which is still very weird. But so that that whole bit is cut. The reproductive organs bit is all cut, which means that the final cut doesn't really make sense with a lot of uh because it's referenced in the series at various points so it, it, it's it's kind of odd that they would remove it um and the line directly after o'neill says oh you know oh it's nothing to do with you being a woman i like women that um without the reproductive organs line he just says by the way if you're worried i'm not a sexist I like women, which is honestly creepier. It's a little bit weird that he would just, apropos of nothing, be like, by the way, not a sexist. I like to have sex with women. I, yeah, I don't know why that was kept in and all the other stuff was taken out. Um, they also, in, in removing that part, remove Carter's CV rundown about how she was working on the gate before Daniel Jackson was. She spent years at the Pentagon working on it, which somewhat does her a disservice, I think, because that really sets up, for me at least, it sets up the fact that she is arguably more qualified to go on this mission than any of the rest of the guys. Just just because they went through the first time doesn't mean they're more qualified than her. In actual fact, she's more qualified than them. So I, I would have liked to see that kept in for the final cut, but I, I think that's interesting. They also, of course, add a lot of lingering looks between O'Neill and Carter. In the original version, there are shots of Kowalski and Ferretti reacting to what Carter's saying to O'Neill and sort of like a oh his buddy look at his buddies watching him get burned. Instead those are replaced with looks between the two of them reacting to what each other's saying, often shots of the other's face while the other is talking. Uh and with the hindsight of the whole series, let's just say that makes a lot of sense and that's something that will be a theme all the way through and it's it's set up a little bit better in the final cut than it is in the original. Um so they go through to the gate after cutting another bit about O'Neill saying, oh, I was going to say ladies first again. Uh, there's lots of just like tiny little bits of O'Neill like niggling uh, at Carter for no reason, just needling her that, that get taken out, which I think is better. Uh, 
So they go through to Abydos and the gates being guarded. Daniel rushes in to stop the Abydonians shooting the team. Were none of these Abydonians around during the first film? I mean, it's been it's only been a year, right? That is that's established earlier on. None of them reckon also Scara isn't there straight away, so Scara doesn't go, hey guys, this is this is our buddies. Uh, none of them recognise them. Whether I don't know if they were expecting Kurt Russell, but uh, they got Rich Dean Anderson instead. So uh, we also in this first bit, as Carter discovers the DHD, which of course this name is this podcast is named after the dial home device, as they call it, the big circular thing with the red thing that does the the address. Uh, we get our first MacGyver reference of the series. Amazing! This is what was missing from the dig at Giza. This is how they controlled it. It took us 15 years and three supercomputers to MacGyver a system for the gate on Earth. That's beautiful. I love when they reference MacGyver on this show because it's it's fun. We'll talk about uh, another great one <laughs> later on in the series. Uh, one of the great outtakes of Stargate history. Um, they then have the scene where they're all sitting around to eat and... I don't really know what the goal of this scene is. The goal of this scene overall seems to be Daniel's cool now, um, which definitely isn't a persisting theme throughout the show. So he's taught these people how to make alcohol. Do we really think Daniel... So Daniel, he may be a scientist, or but he is it's an archaeologist. He's not a chemist. He doesn't know sort of scientifically how to make alcohol also doesn't seem like the sort of people sort of person that would be making bathtub booze in college so i don't know how he taught them to make moonshine but he did uh he then of course gets snogged by his hot wife as they're about to leave um which again is very awkward and i don't really get it the more i think about it the more actually charay is a good example of the problems with writing of women in this show there are a lot of male minor characters who are very well fleshed out. Sharae is very much not fleshed out. She's arguably little more than a plot device for Daniel. Um, he chases her across the universe to try and get her back for a couple of ye- for a good few years. And uh, we don't really know what her personality is. We don't know why she has a relationship with Daniel. We don't understand we're not, we're not given any insight into how they fell for each other, into what they have in common, into what they see in each other. Um, she's very underdeveloped. And in the final cut, they actually add in a scene. In taking out a lot of other sexist stuff, they've put in like another sexist thing of Freddie and the other Marine saying, oh, you have to hand, you have to give Daniel credit. She's a beautiful woman. It's not, she, he didn't make her. She's not. It's not his. He doesn't get to take any credit for how attractive she is. Unless you're saying, oh, he's bagged himself an attractive one, which is kind of sexist. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of confused by that whole sort of editing philosophy of the final cut. Um, so the, the, the core group, which is the three main characters and Kowalski, are they go off to, to see the cartouche. Ferretti is told to hold the to hold the fort, which of course tells us that he's dead. Um, we, we know that from from years of watching Star Trek, even as a casual fan, you know that whoever's left behind to watch the watch the door, he gonna die. That's how it works. But anyway, the, the the four of them go to this cave, and we get the setup essentially in this cave for the whole show. The gate can go to more than one place. The big revelation is that they didn't necessarily come from Abydos, they could have come from anywhere, because here is a big old alien phone book. 
That's what's on the walls. Um, you would think it would be obvious the gate could go to more than one place since it's built like a rotary telephone. However, in, the, in their defense, Carter does say they tried a bunch of uh, combinations. You know, who knows how many they actually tried, but they probably tried a significant number and got absolutely nowhere to think, well, maybe it does. it is just a portal between two places. Um, and and the, the Abydos to Earth link still works because they're closest to each other and those planets haven't shifted, as we discussed. We get some, some science babble about how the address book doesn't really work because Daniel's tried the address book and it doesn't work cartouche uh, addresses but it's uh, because of stellar drift the planets are further apart so they need to compensate for that somehow and rejig the addresses to to work with I don't know it doesn't, it doesn't really make a ton of sense to me I'm not a scientist but effectively they establish that they have found a ton of gate addresses to planets and they are going to go off uh, uh, you would expect and explore those planets or, or at least their, their mind has been opened to the idea that there are other planets that they can go to meanwhile predictably bad things have happened the second they left the room uh, much like at the start of the show Apophis comes through uh, kills all the people with, with weapons and kidnaps Skara and Sharae they I guess are taking Sharae back to the same place they took the women from the start it's not really clear why they kidnapped Scara and didn't kidnap anyone else at the start. It all, be- all becomes sort of clear clear in the second half. Uh, and then, as quickly as the people missed each other, it's kind of like, you wonder, is like Apophis, is one of the Jaffa being played by Rich Dean Anderson? Because as soon as the main characters leave, the baddies come, and then as soon as the baddies leave, the main characters come back from looking at the cartouche. Uh, they find just enough people left alive to tell them what happened. Daniel's told he has to go back to Earth. He does a big emotional farewell. He says that they have to bury the gate or cover the gate, block the gate, and not open it for a year. And in one year from that day, he'll try and bring Shari and Skara back. And he says, you tell Shari's father in one year. So is he saying that they're not supposed to tell Sharae's dad that Sharae is missing for a year does he not visit is that is that just are they estranged does he live somewhere very far away I don't really know what that is but um you're not supposed to tell him for a year until I maybe don't bring her back and then I'll and then we'll tell him that she's probably dead because I haven't been able to get her back there you go uh so they go back through the gate they're in Stargate Command. Three of our heroes are now together in Stargate Command. Uh, and Daniel wants to immediately go off and find Sharae. Hammond is not really... He doesn't really... He's not really feeling that. And uh, kind of tells him where to go. So they're all back, but we're not really sure what's going to happen. And at that point, that is where part one of the pilot ends. That's where episode one ends. And if you're watching maybe on syndication or on TV now. If you just see the one episode, that's where it will end. The DVD and the final cut go on uh, as one whole thing, but this this is the break point for the two episodes. Like I said, there's not actually a lot of the pilot story in the first half. It's very much just establishing the premise of the show and those first three characters. We don't really get a lot of establishing of Teal'c in this first episode. That more comes in, uh, in episode three, we'll call it Enemy Within. But yeah, so we've established three characters, we've established Abydos, we've established Earth, we've established the aliens come from somewhere else, 
and we know what the threat is. And that leads us into part two of Children of the Gods, or the the, the same thing that you're still watching if you're watching on whatever that doesn't have the, the break in the middle. Uh, they also at this point introduce the Iris, which is one of the biggest characters in the, the history of Stargate SG1. It'll appear in a lot of episodes and play a role in a lot of stories. Um, it's a wonder no one's thought of this before. It's a wonder they didn't think of having some kind of protective covering on it before aliens came through and like stole, kidnapped people and killed people. Um, but alas, they've only just thought of it. Also, the gold haven't thought of it, as we'll see when they go through to Julak, because they just let anyone come through. Uh, I guess, you know, perhaps you could, if you wanted to explain that away, you could say it's the arrogance of the gold that they don't think anyone is capable of challenging them if they come through so it doesn't doesn't really matter uh we're shown the prison on chulak where skara is being held uh and Sharae and lots of other people and we see sort of this glint of compassion from teal i guess that we're supposed to take as, as a glint of compassion uh he doesn't want skara to die pointlessly uh he doesn't like killing people uh, doesn't think as many people need to die your death cannot help her. Your death cannot help her. Is he just being matter-of-fact? It's not really clear-cut. Maybe this is, I guess, supposed to be interpreted as humanity. It could just be him being cold. There, a lot of Teal's supposed moments of humanity that we're supposed to interpret in the original version of the pilot I think are quite ambiguous. It doesn't necessarily make uh, complete sense that he turns um and that's something that they addressed in the final cut there are lots there are more shots of teal uh, there's particular uh, when he just before he turns when he's told to kill all the prisoners you see his lip quivering uh and you know they did they, for the final cut they went back to the dailies and restored some some shots that they hadn't included in the original version uh this is also a good line to illustrate the voice changes that were made for final cut uh it's more subtle than you think but the entire uh, Chris Judge vocal performance was redubbed for Final Cut, as were some of uh, uh, Amanda Tapping and Michael Shanks' lines. But th this is the the new version from the Final Cut. So there you go. Uh, meanwhile, back on Earth, Jack takes Daniel to his house, and they have a singular beer to sort of set up the introduction between the two, the the brotherhood between the two. Uh, O'Neill's still a little bit sterner than we'll come to expect, but the dynamics there. Um, arguably more than it was in the movie. Sorry, Kurt Russell. Um, Daniel drinks is drinking one beer and says, oh, this is going straight to my head. Um, says the guy who taught them how to make moonshine. Okay, sure. Sure. Maybe maybe he's really cool on Abydos, but he is not cool on Earth. Um, and he'll talk about his family in this scene, which is really interesting, because this is something that doesn't he doesn't like to talk about. Uh from the film we know that his son had shot himself with O'Neill's gun shortly before that and that led to O'Neill taking the, the first Abydos mission, he thought it was a suicide mission so he, that's basically why he took it. We learn here that as a result of that decision uh, he lost his wife as well and the, by the time he came back I'm not sure how long he was away, by the time he came back his wife had gone uh in the original, there are two scenes in a, a harem room with the blonde officer being picked and then Sharae being picked. And the, blind, the blonde officer is then taken to be judged by Apophis as a, a potential new host for his queen. Um, this is not the nudity scene, don't get confused. That's Sharae, not the blonde officer. Um, 
she does get stripped naked but you don't see anything in this scene i wonder if uh maybe this actress didn't want to do that or whatever who knows um in final cut the harem scenes are gone mostly because they put this scene where the blonde officer is taken to apophis much earlier it comes just as the team leave the gate room on abydos to go see the cartouche part of that was to make it flow more as a whole story i believe and i think it does work in the original version you know i I talked about this when we were talking about the first part the first part is really just an establishing for the whole series and for the and for the the plot of the pilot the action really happens all in the second half and by bringing the story in a little bit earlier of what's happening on chulak it does help it flow a little bit more it doesn't backload all the gold stuff it's time for the mission. We're getting a briefing, uh, which also sets up another big reveal. So we have we know that there are more destinations we can go to, and we now know as well there are more gods. Like there are likely more gods, uh, rather than Ra survived a nuclear explosion. Uh, the president has apparently decided to start the Stargate program. Nine teams will be formed to travel to the destination from the cartoon and explore the universe. Nine teams seems like overkill when Sam says that they will only get two to three addresses a month like at best for nine teams that's one mission per team per quarter that seems excessive maybe just have like just like three teams I gene more than that I mean again spoilers but we will know you know the the expand the number of teams uh I think above 20 uh, at certain points in the series um but O'Neill will lead SG-1, Kowalski will lead SG-2. Obviously, SG-1 is the focus of the show. Uh, the other SG teams really only appear as supporting characters. Uh, they're given transmitters to send the code back to open the iris. If they don't enter the code, they get splattered on the iris. If they lose the transmitter, they're stuck. And then Hammond uses the voice of God from the control room to tell them that they have 24 hours to come back or the iris will be sealed for good. The gate program won't happen. It's all done. So the, the gate, the Stargate program happening is all contingent on the success of this mission to Chulak to, to go and, and find out what the problem is and, and hopefully kill Apophis, but at least coming back in one piece. Uh, they go through in the, these earlier episodes they're sort of thrown out of the gate and that doesn't always happen um, and it's never really explained why but I guess it's just a little bit inconvenient alright and now we, we get to it the nudity the nudity that was in the original Showtime aired version of this pilot it still exists in the DVD version uh, I have seen as I said for the for this for this episode in Children of the Gods I've watched the original version from the DVD uh, with the nudity I've watched the censored television version which is the version that I saw uh, because in the UK it aired I think in prime time uh, or at least at a reasonable time on Sky 1 there's no nudity in that original version that I saw when I was 5 thank goodness don't think my mother would have let me see it if she knew there was nudity in it Uh, and I've also watched the final cut as well which had the nudity removed so Shari's judged and chosen as the host for uh, Apophis's queen um, and the actress is, is completely nude you see uh, you know it, a full length shot of her wearing no clothes um, this version it, the, the censor version is also on the one that's generally on services like Netflix as well so really the nudity is only preserved on original DVDs uh, it was taken out in the final cut 
show co-creator Brad Wright has claimed that the nudity was a demand from Showtime, uh, that they didn't want to do it, but that Showtime wanted the show to be a bit adult, so they, they demanded there be nudity in it. Um, and it did do great ratings for the pilot, so maybe that was part of it. Um, but in taking it out for a final cut, Brad Wright said to this to, uh, to Gateworld, which is a great website, by the way, a uh, great resource for Stargate fans. It has a great podcast as well. Uh, I don't think they do it anymore, but they, they did it for a long time. Uh, Brad Wright said, it doesn't belong in Stargate. I'm not a prude, this, but this is a family show. It has violence, there's no question it has violence, but it's always, almost always some sort of just violence as opposed to random or gratuitous. I tend to agree. Um, I think the nudity was a bit gratuitous. It doesn't really fit with the tone of the show, even as early as like a few episodes in, it doesn't fit tonally with the show. It feels really weird. And it did definitely become a family show. Uh, I don't know how much it was a family show. There's some genuinely like scary parts in, in, in parts of the first series. But it did become very much a family show. Um, I've also said earlier, you know, I think Sharae's a very underdeveloped character. She's essentially just a prop for Daniel. And for, to, for that prop to be kind of needlessly exposed uh, is, uh, is a little bit gross. Lots of people are very angry that there's a censored version. Uh, they're very angry that it's the only show on Netflix, and people were very angry when it was removed in Final Cut. Uh, I was going to do this at the end, but maybe I'll just do this now. Uh, there are some IMDb reviews for the Final Cut, and most of them focus on the nudity. So let's have a look here. Uh, this is from Tom. It's three out of... The rating is 10, right? It's 10 stars on IMDb. It's very weird. Uh, Stargate started on Showtime. A cable subscription doesn't carry commercials. They were looking for programming with an edge, a sharpness that would set it apart from the bland offerings of the commercial sponsored networks. Uh, it was toned down when it moved to sci fi. Um, <clears throat> the last line of this review is really what you need. Why would you watch this scrubbed up version if you're going to see it at a church, fun church function? I can understand. Otherwise, go and see the original. All the sexual things have been removed. This one. Uh, I can understand the need for removing the news. This is from Joshua uh, from Norway. I guess many younger fans are angry for not being able to see the episode that started. Oh, I don't. Really? I don't know. Uh, I think the exaggerated, the nudity scene fitted in the story. I find nothing improper with it, and the show was intended to be R-rated. Eh. No. I don't, I don't think it really fitted the story, or was necessary. Uh, people are also annoyed about the, the cutting of the reproductive organs line. Uh, let's have a look. Uh, this, is from, this is from Liz. Three stars out of ten. Uh, yes, there was nudity, but it fit with what going on. Ancient gods are notorious for being sexual beings. I mean, they're not ancient gods. They are snakes. Little, little reptile things in people. Uh, this, this is, therefore, it is only logical for a parasite posing as one to want a perfect queen. I mean, you can see from... Uh, I mean, to, an, to a great extent, you can see what you're getting with clothes on, uh, particularly what little clothes she was wearing. Um, let's have a look. Looking for more stuff about the, uh, the nudity. Oh. 
This the, the this is an interesting one. This is the I've, I've, that's all the ones with the nudity, but this bottom one here uh, from Big Cloitz from Vancouver, where Stargate was filmed. I came to this as a Stargate innocent. I've never watched an episode. I figured a reworked pilot of the episode of the series might be a good place to start if I was ever going to dip in. But after this film, I'm certainly not going to give Stargate another chance. Stilted Triton plodding it just reeks of old school sci-fi camp. I mean, yeah, it does. That's because it is kind of old school sci-fi camp. You wrote this in 2010. It's a show from 1997. Things had changed. The characters are pretty paper thin, pretty boys and girls. Well, then, I mean, they're not all that pretty. Um, the acting's so weak, you can see them trying to remember their lines. Can you? I don't think you can. Uh, from what I understand, ah, here we go. This is this is the line I was looking for. From what I understand from the other comments, this version was stripped of a little sexiness gratuitous nudity in the original they might have at least made it tolerable to sit through great there you go uh, it goes on to say that uh the, he's been spoiled by battlestar galactica and can't enjoy sg1 don't compare battlestar galactica to start sg1 it's totally different i mean battlestar galactica is an adult show for one uh and this is more of a family campy sci-fi drama anyway that's the IMDb reviews. I just thought I'd sprinkle some of those in because they amuse me. And I think I think we can be done with the nudity. Uh, I think I just leave it that I agree with Brad Wright that it was right to remove it for the final cut. I'm glad that it that the censored version is the predominant version because it is not necessary. Anyway, I I don't. Uh, I I want to say this first because there's going to be a, uh, there's, I've written down a lot of snide comments. I don't really like the second half of the pilot. I think a lot of it makes very little sense. So they meet some priests when they come through who treat them like gods just for coming through the Stargate. And that's something that happens quite a lot in the early series and is quite uncomfortable and colonialist. Uh, and Daniel benevolently, benevolently tells them it's not necessary. They take them to the town to have dinner in a weirdly Grecian room considering that we're supposed to believe that the gold opposes Egyptian gods. There's sort of pillars and plants, and it does look very sort of like uh, a B-movie about Caesar in this room, which is a little bit odd. Uh, Apophis crashes the dinner with uh, Shari, who is now his queen. Daniel can't contain himself. He gives him away. He gets hand-deviced into a wall. I don't know what's the... The the ver the I don't know the verb for that hand devicing someone he gives him a whoosh with the hand device uh, he hits a wall uh, and they get taken away. Then we cut to Samuel's coming into Hammond's office to set up the time peril. So we we know they were given twenty four hours and it's only been ten minutes of screen time as far as we've seen. They have gone through, found the priests, and been taken to Chulak. Now we. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how long it takes them to get there, but then after they've had the dinner and been knocked out, Hammond says, is asks how much time do they have left, and Samuel says just under two hours. So in ten minutes of screen time, twenty-two hours have passed. Holy, speeding up the plot, bad man. I mean, really. Uh, when Daniel wakes up in prison, he's apparently been unconscious for quote-unquote hours. Uh, O'Neill has spent those hours exploring the quite small prison room to try and find a way out, and has only just found Skara in the other corner. Uh, so they're reunited, which is nice, for a little bit. This is why I think it's this second half is kind of dumb. 
Um, but it does its job and it has some nice moments. Uh, Teal comes up to him, is intrigued by uh, by what O'Neill's watches, asks them where they're from. Again, this is supposed to be him sort of coming to realise that because they have a watch, apparently they have the level of technology to potentially defeat the gold, uh, which leads to him turning. Uh, <laughs> Apophis comes in and they choose some of the remaining prisoners as hosts. I'm skipping ahead a little bit because there's just some other stuff in here that I just uh, I don't really don't really care to talk about. It's uh, you know Kowalski waking up and saying, "Oh, another one of my favorite lines. Another fa- another fabulous day on planet Kowalski. He's naming planets. I don't think he gets to do that. I don't get, think he gets to name it. That's not fair." So they choose some of the remaining prisoners as hosts, order the rest killed. Uh, Teal'c is about to lead the Jaffa in killing him, and O'Neill shouts for me what is the iconic line of the pilot, and this scene, for all it is a little bit dumb, does uh, does redeem the second half of the pilot for me. I can save these people! Help me! Interestingly, that line is delivered significantly differently. In Final Cut, uh, I didn't include the the second help me there, the quieter help me, uh, but the loud help me is totally removed in the Final Cut. I can save these people. Help me. To me, I think one. I prefer the first version, but I think the second version exists to accommodate the rescoring. Uh, if you don't know the final cut, the, the original pilot was scored using the music from the film. So they just sort of cut it up and put it in uh, music that had already been recorded for the for the film score. Uh, the final cut, they had Joe Goldsmith, who did the score on every episode in the franchise, do a whole new original score for Children of the Gods. And it is better. It's less heavy handed and bombastic than the movie version. And the, the Help Me line gets a much subtler music cue <clears throat> to really sort of, to me, hang a lantern on the, the poignancy of the moment and how pivotal the moment is. It doesn't just feel like an action crash boom bang, it feels like there is emotional heft to what's being asked and, and O'Neill knows how desperate a Hail Mary this is and he has very little reason to think that this person's going to help him and seems to just have this, this sense um, but luckily he's right Teal accepts and throws him a weapon the two of them take out five Jaffa while standing completely still um, the Jaffa either they fire like stormtroopers or they're so regimented that they have to do what they're told because you see them shooting prisoners rather than Teal and O'Neill and they're just like well these guys are shooting us but we've been told we have to kill the prisoners uh, the O'Neill is a prisoner so you could shoot him but yeah uh, so they kill Jaffa, the prisoners escape, blasting a hole in the wall, and again, this is another great line from this scene that, that really helps it for me, Teal'c realising he, what he's done. I have nowhere to go. It's also possibly the best example of, uh, of Chris Judge's revoicing in the final cut. Here is the version of that line from the final cut. I have nowhere to go. So they go on a long trip back to the gate. Uh, Tilk explains what a Jafai is and that he carries an infant gold and, and all the benefits of that. Uh, they're attacked by a glider, which they fight off. One of SG2 destroys it with a, a rocket launcher. Uh, the gold arrive at the gate in a big glider ship thing. They transport down and, and start to go through the gate. 
In the final cut, that ship is replaced with a cargo ship because the cargo ship is a sort of in-canon ship, whereas this ship that was originally in the pilot is never seen again. Uh, the glider from the glider fight, the one glider is replaced with two better CGI gliders as well. That's one of the, I think, the biggest improvements is changing that glider fight. I still don't really think it's that great a, se- a, great, that great a battle, but it, it works. They get to the gate just in time for Skara to... to hand device O'Neill uh, and literally and figuratively punch him in the heart uh, which is kind of gutting to see Um, it takes Daniel forever to dial the gate oh my god why does it take him this long to find the bit of paper with the symbols on why wouldn't you memorise them for goodness sake they're really important so it takes him forever to find this bit of paper so long that they're now under attack and they're all having to fight off these uh hatless Jaffas uh, who appear to be even more useless than the serpent-headed Jaffas they, they're shooting them with the, the O'Neill and Teal'c have still got the staff weapons, SG-2 are helping uh, and there's also this guy who was in the, we see him I think once in the prison sequence who's like the sort of caveman guy, he's got like long hair and like dirty face, a big fur he's wearing fur and he bear hugs one of the Jaffa to death and it's awesome. Unfortunately, that Jafalin falls next to Kowalski, who's helping a downed uh, comrade, and the symbiote jumps about three feet into the air uh, and into Kowalski's ear. Uh, they manage to dial the gate just as Hammond is ordering the gate sealed, so they, they, they make it just in time, and uh, they, they all get through the gate with all these refugees that they then say they're going to send home. They celebrate. O'Neill says Teal'c should probably join SG-1. I agree with Hammond's reticence that that uh, probably should require some more discussion. And just as they're walking down the ramp and celebrating, Kowalski's eyes glow. And that's cut from the final cut. That, 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 that isn't included because they wanted to make it more of a self-contained story. So the, the final cut really doesn't, for me, work as an introduction to the series. It is more of a, it's a collector's thing, right? It's more for people like me who have seen every episode and wanted to see a different version, wanted to see perhaps uh, the, the version with hindsight. It's an interesting uh, DVD that I would recommend you pick up. It's also, interestingly, the only DVD commentary that Richard Dean Anderson ever did on SG-1. Uh, so it's well worth watching with the commentary more than anything because you've heard a lot of it. You know, you, you don't really need to hear what's going on You know, if you know the pilot. Watch it with the commentary. But uh, yeah, in the original version, Kowalski's Eyes Glow, and that leads into, obviously, the cliffhanger of episode three. So that's Children of the Gods. That is episode 10102 of Stargate SG-1 and of the DHD podcast. Uh, overall, looking back on this, I've had to put a lot of work into this, watching three different versions. Uh, this has been a lot <laughs> to do this first episode. And as I get to the end of this, I am kind of regretting saying I would do both parts as one episode. But it's done now, and it is ready for you, for your oral enjoyment. Uh I expect this to be a longer episode than than subsequent episodes, obviously, because we have half the amount of stuff to talk about. Overall, I think Children of the Gods works uh, as a setup to the team, particularly the three uh, human characters, to to Daniel, to Sam, and to Jack. We get to see them and get to see their dynamic, uh, which works really well. And I think 
one of the things that this pilot drives home to me is that there there are definite missteps in the pilot, definitely things that don't work in the pilot, but the chemistry between uh, Richard Dean Anderson and everyone, the chemistry between Michael Shanks and Amanda Tapping, uh, and that chemistry between Richard Dean Anderson and Chris Judge, really is what the chemistry between the 14 members is what drives the show and it's what makes it such an enjoyable show that that family of sg1 and that chemistry you know that's one in a million chemistry it's lightning in a bottle chemistry that you you sort of you imagine tv casting agents hope for uh that's the whole point is to get a team that works this well as your lead characters and you don't always get it and that's how shows fail but if it wasn't for the chemistry of these four people, I don't know the show would have lasted 10 years. And it's, you know, obviously we'll talk about season six and talk about the fact that Michael Shanks took a break. And uh, I, I do find, I'm, I'm definitely doing what I said I wouldn't do in spoiling later series, but it did affect the show and, and other changes will affect the show as we get into the later series. But that chemistry is so important and so at the fore, even when they're in conflict, and that's what makes this show so compelling. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the DHT Podcast, the first episode. Uh, if you're watching along with me, I I very much appreciate that. Uh, please tweet me your thoughts at DHTPod. We're on Facebook.com forward slash DHTPod as well. Please give us a like on Facebook uh, and come and discuss the episode with us on Facebook. That's probably the best uh, best forum for a discussion. So let's all get together on Facebook and, and talk about it. Uh, the podcast is hosted on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com forward slash DHTPod. You can also search for the DHT podcast on iTunes as well. Uh, I'm on Twitter at CalumLeslie92, but you probably already know that if you're listening to this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week with The Enemy Within, episode three of season one of Stargate SG-1.